subject matter described in this podcast may be mature in nature and some details disturbing or triggering to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Hey everyone, I'm your host Britt, and this is the Poisonous Minds Podcast. If you enjoy stories of true crime, unsolved mysteries, and the unknown, then you came to the right place. Luckily for you, I will be retelling you stories of all of these things with my comedic take on it. So grab yourself a seat and let's hit this shit show. Today specifically, I'm going to talk about a fucked up murder committed by a kid who went to my high school. The crime takes place in Illinois. Our first asshole on the docket is John Granite Jr. He was, at the time, 17 years old. He was a senior at Stagg High School, and he planned and executed the murder of his parents, John Sr. and Maria Granite. But he wasn't alone. Now, to give a little background on John Sr. and Maria... One, they are a lovely, adorable couple. You can just see that they totally just fell in love immediately. They both were from Poland. They found each other and they got married. They wanted to build their American dream. So they migrated here from Poland. And uh, John Granite actually came first. And then when he was a little more established... Um, his wife came to America. So he was actually, uh, John Sr. was actually very handy. He built their home um, in Palos Park. So it's, it just shows you that they were very much the shirt off your back type people. Um, He actually also helped build the house next door. Um, The couple bought and managed four apartment buildings, uh, owned other homes. The dad even employed his son as a maintenance worker to do, you know, little chores around the apartment buildings, cleaning and vacuuming, trimming the lawn and bushes and keeping everything looking good. So these people, you can, you can tell they were hardworking. They were building a great life for themselves. Um, They seemed to have it all um, until things changed drastically. So, back to the story. Now, John Jr. was living like most 17-year-olds are, in their parents' home in a nice, quiet neighborhood of Palos Park. All of this quickly changed on September 11th, 2011. Eerie. I know. Little Johnny Jr., 
called 911 and said that he had woke up that morning, went upstairs to get his parents for church. But as he was doing so, he found his home in total shambles and stumbled upon his parents' lifeless bodies. So immediately, one of the officers on scene, Officer Zitch, sorry if I butcher these names, the it's a little complicated. <laughs> so Officer Zitch notices that there are no signs of force entry on the exterior or interior of the home, and all of the doors were locked from the inside. So Officer Zitch also spoke with John Jr. and even noted to the detective that John was not crying. Uh, he was not at all emotional, but rather he was very calm, average demeanor, basically like nothing even happened. Now, I know everyone reacts differently to trauma and stress, but to be called calm after finding your parents dead in your home at 17 definitely raises some fucking red flags. So anyways, another responding Cook County Sheriff's Officer, Elizabeth Hogan, also told the detective, um, his name is Detective Moody, that John Jr. said he had been home all night with his parents and they had gone to bed at about 11 o'clock and John Jr. made it a point to explain to Officer Hogan that he slept in the basement and that he was a hard sleeper. So he didn't hear anything, but woke up to find his upstairs ransacked and his parents dead in bed. Officer Hogan also stated to Detective Moody that John Jr.'s demeanor during their conversation was calm and not emotional at all. That's a direct quote. <laughs> and again, she noted that John wasn't crying or anything like that. This wonderful officer of the year, Cook County, I really hope you pay her well, also pointed out to the detectives that she noticed the fucking pants that Johnny J was wearing were brand new because they still had the size tags on them. <laughs> fucking moron. To add even more twists <laughs> to this story, Payless Heights officer, H Hoderitz, I'm sorry, this is a hard one, Hoderitz, who was also at the scene, recalled that he had pulled John Jr. over in his car at about 5.19 a.m. that morning near about 122nd Street and Harlem Avenue for a traffic stop, which isn't too extremely far. Um, he stopped him because the light above his license plate was out. So during the stop, his officer asked for the standard license and registration, um, proof of insurance, and John Jr. mumbled something to him about coming from a friend's house in Bridgeview. When John Jr. went to open the glove box to get the information, the officer noted a water bottle that was in his car filled with a yellowish liquid. 
So this officer then asked John, what was in the water bottle? John answered, it was chlorine for his pool. Turns out, the granites didn't have a pool. And the chlorine was actually used to clean up blood. This officer also confirmed that the car that was in the driveway was the same car he had pulled over and that John was wearing the same jeans, <laughs> sleeveless t-shirt, and a sleeveless vest when he pulled him over hours earlier. I don't really think a sleeveless t-shirt and a sleeveless vest would be the first pick for church outfits. I would say, there goes your alibi, Johnny. So, things were quickly falling apart for John. Uh, he was talking to the detectives. Um, the detectives, you know, obviously caught on all to these red flags and asked John Jr. to accompany them to the police station, which he did. So the detectives listened to the 911 call and shockingly found even more inconsistencies with John's story. We're going to listen to that 911 call right now. Let's hear. Sunday, 
any noise from your mom or dad? I mean, when you went into their no. bedrooms, nothing? I'm like a hungry sleeper. I just, I think I sleep until it's too hot. I mean, sleep, it's not like sleeping upstairs because so it gets hot. Okay. So I stay there. Okay, so is the fire department going in the house right now, John, or they're oh, just, they're with you right now? Okay, all right. All right, they're almost there, okay? Just let me know when you see them pull up, okay? All right. They're staying with him, yeah. Right? The fire department is staying with you, right? Okay, all right. All right, do you see my officers pulling up right now? I don't see anything yet. Not yet? And you're right on the corner of 127th and 81st, right? Yes. All right. Okay, one of our officers, I guess, is going to go straight to the house, I'm being told. Okay, John? All right. Okay, and you said that your house was ransacked? Yeah. And things are flipped over and turned over. Do you have any other brothers and sisters? No. Just you Rob three. Last year. You got robbed last year? Yeah. He's going down. Okay. Okay. Do you see my officers at all? It's the one with the white truck. Okay, so that was the 911 call. It, he seems very chill for his parents just being found murdered. Um, clearly makes it the avid point of mentioning that he is a heavy sleeper. And, I mean, I get 17-year-olds may not totally know when their parents' birthdays are... I think you know the birthday. You may not know the year. Give him the birthday. But you seem so chill that it's not something that you just forgot because you were in a traumatic event. Um, you hear very few sniffles. <laughs> There's like a few times I think he just forced that to make it sound like he was upset. And the, the comment to the dispatcher about how they were robbed last year... It just, it strikes as odd. So, all right, jumping a little bit back. Um, after looking over countless case documents, um, or court documents on this case, there's a lot. <laughs> there is so much, there's a lot of moving parts. So I'm going to break it down a little bit. Um, still might be a little lengthy, but enjoy. <laughs> So, John told dispatchers that he had gone upstairs to wake his parents up for church, found them drowning in their own blood. Later on, he told the dispatcher that he had not saw his mom at all, 
and only his dad, and he didn't know where she was. So a few things start to conflict. Next, John continuously repeats that he is a heavy sleeper and could not hear anything from where he slept in the basement. When the dispatchers ask Sleepy John how many people live in his home, John responded that he had been robbed in the past, which Detective Moody found this to be odd, you think? Um, when Detective Moody got back to the station, Sleepy John was kicked back in the lunchroom watching TV, just chilling in his new pants with the tags on them. Uh, but before Detective Moody interviewed Sleepy John, he had patted him down. Shockingly, he removed $5,163, including 50 $100 bills in his wallet. He interviewed him on and off for a few hours, and Sleepy John was noted to not have even asked what had happened to his parents. Didn't even care. Seems kind of odd for a sleepy 17-year-old boy on his way to church with $5,000 in his pocket, right? Red flags everywhere. <laughs> so, in the court document, it was brought up that with further investigation of the house, it was inconsistent with anyone having had slept in the basement, but was more consistent with someone who had been involved in an incident that was taking place down there. I don't know if this means they may have found blood spatter down there or um, things like that. That's kind of what it sounds like. As we get into the case, you'll hear a little bit more and how that connects. So... So when Detective Moody and John Jr. were talking, John began to change his version of events of the evening. First, it was that his dad was a weed dealer and a rival gang member by the name of Momo was the one to be looking at. That one didn't pan out very well for Sleepy John. When confronted about the change in stories, Sleepy John said that he was actually at his friend's house Chris Wyma, the morning of the murders, and that he was with two other friends, Mohammed Salat and Ihab Qasim. John then suggested that Ihab Qasim was responsible for the murders of his parents. So, recapping, we have Sleepy John. I'm just calling him that for now on because he's just such a heavy sleeper. So tired. He's 17 years old. His friend, Christopher Wyma, also 17 years old from Bridgeview. Ehab Kasim, 19 years old, and he lived in Hickory Hills. And Mohammed Salat, 17 years old. Now, Detective Moody interviews all the people John mentioned and takes their statements, searches their cell phones, and hold on to your chairs, ladies and gentlemen. Shit's about to get fucked up. <laughs> Detective Moody recovers cell phone records of Sleepy John, Wyma, Salat, Kwasim that were sent to the secret fucking service for analysis. When the results were in, they were all immediately called back for interviewing. And eventually they were all charged. Now this did take a while. Kwasim told the courts 
that he and Wyma planned and executed the murders of John's parents. He said that he and Wyma were good friends. Wyma introduced him to Sleepy John. And Kwasim had introduced Salat. And the four spent a lot of their time together that summer. Kasim said he recalled Sleepy John giving Wyma money from time to time during the summer. He would go out and buy some new clothes, you know, keep looking fresh. Sleepy John also gave Kasim and Wyma $400 each for work that they did at Mr. and Mrs. Granite's apartment complexes. Kwasim later in court documents recalls one day during the summer that Sleepy John gave him $2,300 for no reason and then took him and Wyma shopping at the mall, buying $600 in clothes, which John paid for in cash. Kwasim testified that during the shopping spree, John asked him if he liked this lifestyle and commented to Wyma, you know, if my parents were dead, everything is in my name. Kwasim also said that one week prior to the shopping spree, Sleepy John was complaining about his parents and said, I'm tired of them. I just want my parents dead. They only let me out of the house when I go to school, gym, or work. I'm tired of them. I just want them dead. Apparently, Kwasim thought this very specific frustration of Sleepy John's wish was just a joke, and the three of them laughed it off. Heartwarming, am I right? Kwasim said that he didn't see Sleepy John much the rest of the summer because he was grounded by his parents, but they remained in contact by texting. Later in August, Sleepy John texted Kwasim and asked if he could get a machine gun grenade launcher, bulletproof vest, and silencer, which he said he couldn't. You know, all the stuff that's just readily available to any 17-year-old teenager. If that wasn't enough, Wyma also asked Wasim for the same items. <laughs> Not much changed in his reply. <laughs> Why would they think that this child would even be able to get his hands on such equipment? Like, I don't know. When I was in high school, I don't think I can name a single person that I thought would have a grenade launcher, a bulletproof vest, machine gun. I mean, maybe a silencer, but like, not. No, we're not doing that. <laughs> Anyways, Curious Kwasim and Waima then asked Salat if he could get a gun with a silencer because he wanted to kill his parents. Salat refused to be any part of it until Kasim and Waima changed his mind by reminding him how much they received their new clothes and how they got those things. So Salat tried to purchase a gun with a silencer, but when he couldn't, Waima suggested that they just use a machete and metal baseball bats. That's fucked up. Salat agreed he would only be the driver. Kwasim and Waima continued to keep in contact with Sleepy John by texting, since, you know, he was still grounded and all. 
Christine testified in court on September 10th, 2011, a day prior to the gruesome murders. He was at Wyma's residence with Wyma, Salat, and some friends. Sleepy John arrived, and the group met up in Wyma's driveway. Kasim said that John Jr. was frustrated and talking very fast and kind of pacey, almost like he was in a panic. He was telling the group that he wanted his parents dead that day and then left. Kasim and Salat left for a while, but when they returned, Wyma confronted them, saying that Sleepy John wanted the murder done that day. Kosim and Slat left again, but returned later on that evening after receiving a text from Wyma. Now, Wyma's still, like, he's got people at his house. Like, they're kind of having a party. So, there were actually people who saw them meeting up. Anyways... Wyma explained to them that Sleepy John was going to call him on Skype later that night about a quote-unquote concert. This was a code word he set up to give them the green light to let them know that his parents were asleep and they were good to go in the house and kill them. Now, Wyma later in his testimony says that the code word was actually used, or it was supposed to be used for sleepy john to say that he had killed his parents and they need to come over regardless concert was the code word um but i think that they obviously knew that they were going to kill his parents so kwasim arrived around 1 45 a.m on september 11th sleepy john called wyma on skype and used the code word wyma reached for the metal bats and Salat drove Kwasim and Waima to Sleepy John's home. Salat dropped them off, and Kwasim told him to drive around until they gave him the signal to pick him back up. So Salat left. Sleepy John was waiting outside, supposedly with a miner's helmet, <laughs> um, to signal Kwasim and Waima from behind the bush with the light. He then led them towards the garage. He opened the rear service door and told them that his parents were sleeping upstairs. Kwasim testifies that he saw multiple stacks of money on a counter in the garage, all in $100 bills. Kwasim said that when he and Waima went upstairs, the bats that they were holding actually clinked together. So they ran back down to the garage and Sleepy John was sitting in there counting money into piles and ordered them to go back upstairs. So, Kwasim and Waima went back upstairs into Mr. and Mrs. Granite's bedroom. Once inside, Waima went to the left side of the bed and Kwasim to the right. They raised their bats in unison and began striking the victims, aiming for their heads. Now, this may be a little late in the game, but we're going to give a full disclosure. Uh, this is a little gruesome, so if you're a little squeamish, don't like to hear gory details and things, um, go ahead and skip forward, or maybe this just isn't for you. Uh, but as we move forward, you may hear some gruesome facts that were in court documents. So, I digress. The fearless John Sr. was able to get out of bed 
while being attacked and attempted to defend himself and his wife. But Kwasim stopped striking Maria and went to help Wyma by striking John Sr. in the face with the metal bat. John Sr. struggled and finally fell to the ground and stopped moving. Maria was on the bed and was later described in court documents as making gurgling noises, which absolutely makes me sick that these boys did not stop their gruesome attack on this husband and wife, on their friend's parents. Like, that's just, it's so messed up. Kwasim and Waima then put a pillow over Mrs. Granat's head and struck her a few more times. The pair then made their way back to the garage where they find Sleepy John still counting money. Wyma told him that his mom was still breathing. Sleepy John then gave Kwasim a knife from the shelf and told him to go ahead and take care of it. Kwasim and Wyma went back upstairs and Kwasim tried to pass the knife off to Wyma, but he refused. So Kwasim then stabbed Maria, who was still fighting for her life, as he drove the knife into her stomach and other parts of her body. The pair returned to the garage again and put the bats, knife, and gloves into a black garbage bag that John Jr. provided. Sleepy John then led them to the bathroom and helped them clean the blood off their faces. He then ordered them to search the attic and the parents' room for a safe while he searches the home office. So backing up to the point where they said the basement didn't look like it had been slept in by somebody, but like that there was an incident that had taken place. Um, I believe the cleaning of the face and cleaning up of everybody happened downstairs. I could be wrong. Um, That's just what is pretty much gathered from the information from court documents. Um, You know, some articles that we found or I found online, things like that. So, Kwasim did not find any safe, but he took Maria's cell phone while Wyma took a jewelry box and a bag of coins. Kwasim called Salat to pick them up. Sleepy John put cash into a bag and put it in his car. Salat pulled up, picked up Kwasim and Wyma, and drove back to Wyma's house. Sleepy John then arrived at Wyma's around 20 minutes later. And he gave $4,000 to Salat, $8,000 to Kwasim, and $8,000 to Waima, plus another $5,000 to Waima to give to his mother. What a sweet boy. Waima told John to act normal and make sure he opened a window at his house so that the events looked like a robbery gone bad. <laughs> Someone thought ahead. He also told him to tell the police that he went to wake up his parents and he found them dead. Group organized their stories to tell the police. John then left and Waima, Kwasim, and Salat wiped the bats and knife with Clorox wipes. The group attempted to burn them, the gloves and the garbage bag, but that plan failed. So Waima put the bats under his porch and later moved them to a forest preserve and threw the knife into a wooded area, which they were later recovered by the police. 
Kwasim testified in trial that the group separated and he went home to sleep. Later, detectives arrived at his residence and he agreed to speak with them and gave them the story the group had prepared, which was that Waima and Salat had gone for dinner that night. They went back to Waima's house, delivered weed to somebody on 55th Street and Harlem Avenue, and returned to Waima's to play video games and sleep. Asim gave versions of this story up until about October 2011. Then, detectives confronted him with inconsistencies. Kwasim came up with a new story before giving his testimony. He told the police that the plan was simply to rob John's parents, and then Sleepy John had hit them with the baseball bat before he and Waima arrived to the house. Additional evidence helpful during the trial included testimony from Stephanie Wydra, a former girlfriend of Wyma's, forensics, autopsy, and cell phone data. Uh, Wyma's then-girlfriend testified that she knew Wyma and John were good friends, and she had often heard John talking about how much he hated his parents and wanted them dead, but she did not take him seriously. Side note. Listen. I've collected my bonus red flag here. <laughs> Poisonous minds tip number one. If you hear someone continually talking about wanting their parents dead, please notify authorities or a fucking adult. Thank you for tuning in. Now back to your episode. It was also noted that she was one of the people at Wyma's house the day before the murders. She was able to testify that she saw John arrive, and he, Wyma, Kwasim, and Salat talked in the driveway when she overheard one of them say, this is happening tonight. It's on. The next day, when she found out Sleepy John's parents were murdered, she saw Wyma who she said seemed nervous and agitated. When she was at his house, she found about $15,000 in $100 bills in a guitar case. Wyma then gave her a t-shirt from under his bed and said that there was blood on it and asked her to burn it. She took the shirt home, saw blood spatter on it, and eventually turned it over to the police. There were no fingerprints suitable to analyze on the baseball bats that were found by police, and there was not any blood on the bats or knife, because they did wipe them down and they tried to burn them, but you can't burn the bat. Anyways, however, blood on the t-shirt Wyma's girlfriend turned over matched John Sr., and DNA on the collar matched Wyma. Autopsy clearly showed that John Sr.'s death was a homicide via multiple blunt force trauma injuries, including bruises, lacerations, and fractures on his skull, nose, and jaw, resulting in hemorrhaging. It's just so sad. He, even suffering those terrible wounds, he still tried to fight. Maria suffered similar injuries and had additionally been stabbed in her torso, 
hand, and lip more than 20 times. The cell phone findings show that John, Quasim, Wyma, and Salat's cell phones were all in the area of Sleepy John's home the morning of September 11th. Particularly, at 1.46 a.m., Sleepy John was near his house when he got a text from Wyma's phone. 3.12 a.m., Sleepy John's phone was near his home between 3.12 a.m. and 3.23 a.m. Wyma's phone pinged near John's house between 3.04 and about 3.16. Kwasim's phone pinged near John's home between 3.04 and 3.23. Salat's phone pinged near John's home also when he dropped them off and when he picked them up. Later, at 3.41 a.m., 4.41 a.m. and 5.26 a.m. Sleepy John's phone pinged near Wyma's house between 4 a.m. and 4.21 a.m. Wyma's phone was also found to be pinging from nearby his home. That kind of gives a little bit of a timeline of events of when they were around that area. So... Also, the Skype call had occurred between 1.46 a.m. and 1.57 a.m. At trial, the jury found Sleepy John guilty of first-degree murder and sentenced him to natural life in prison. 17-year-old at the time, Christopher Wyma, was tried as an adult and was convicted of the murders and was sentenced to life in prison. His appeal is currently pending in court. 19-year-old Ahib Qasim pled guilty to one count of murder in exchange for 40 years in prison and his testimony against Sleepy John and Chris Wyma. 17-year-old Mohammed Salat is currently serving 35 years in prison on one count of murder. Well, thank you all for listening to this fucked up first episode of the murders of Mr. and Mrs. Granite. Please rate, review, like, and subscribe on all platforms. And you can find me at Poisonous Minds Pod on all of your platforms. I hope you enjoy. Please feel free to email me at poisonousmindspod at gmail.com for any suggestions on future stories. Um, or anything. Let me hear from you guys. Send me pictures of your animals or things you like to do. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening. See y'all soon. Bye. The Poisonous Minds podcast is written, produced, and composed by myself, Brittany Mejias.